Welcome to the Roxborough Church Podcast. For more resources and information, visit RoxboroughChurch.org. We hope you are blessed by this week's message. With every head bow, every eyes closed as we prepare our hearts and minds to receive the word. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord, first and foremost, for your ever-presence in our lives. Lord, we ask that you would pour into Pastor Ricky as he pour out the word. And Lord, we ask that the word will be fruitful. And Lord, that we will receive it for nourishment of our spiritual growth, our mental growth, our physical growth. In Jesus' name, we pray, let it not come back to you empty or, but let it come back to you fulfilling the duty that you sent out for it. In Christ's name, we pray, amen. We ask that you would feast your eyes on the uh, screen for a video before Pastor Ricky comes and brings the word. Amen? Amen. Christian unity is a matter that should be taken seriously because God takes it seriously. That's the short, short thesis that um, I put to you now. See, in, in the Bible, the Lord Jesus prays that all his disciples everywhere at all times will be one. One in their fellowship with him, one in their life together. And when the Apostle Paul writes about the church, he talks about there being unity of the Spirit as a given reality which embraces all Christians here and now. So church unity doesn't mean primarily or even essentially um, church union, though a lot of people make that mistake and think it does. Christian unity means acknowledging that we're all of us sharers in the love of the same Savior and the power of the same Holy Spirit and the worship of the same Heavenly Father. And being together in that brings us together as brothers and sisters in a single family so that all Christians straight away must see themselves as brothers, sisters, sisters and friends to every other Christian in the world. One of the wonderful things that happens worldwide is the people of different race, different background, different culture, when they find that they are fellow Christians, embrace each other, are instant friends with each other, love and care for each other, and rejoice in being together. It's a glorious thing which is only known in the church. People think that life in the church is all dull, when one starts to experience Christian unity with fellow believers, one realizes just how false that is. How you guys doing this morning? Good. Um, so that was uh, J.R. Packer, um, awesome author. He wrote a book called uh, Knowing God. Um, recommend it to you guys all. Uh, but... Um, one of the things that uh, kind of struck me um, about what he said is that uh, Christian unity is primarily not about um, necessarily what we have in common, 
um, but it's, it's really where we're grounded in, um, and, and that's Christ. And so, um, although we don't always see uh, cr- Christian unity demonstrated in every aspect, um, obviously, you know, churches have their, their fights with one another and, and bickering and that sort of thing. Um, but the idea is that uh, Christians have uh, the propensity to experience um, unity that transcends uh, ethnicity, race, um, and uh, a whole bunch of other different obstacles. Um, and, and that's primarily God's avenue, um, as we talked about a few weeks ago, that God's using the church as a way to show the world, like, this unity um, that we have in Christ is, is amazing, um, and, and it, pr- it should produce a joy, understanding that we don't always experience that joy, right? Um, but it should produce this sense of joy um, because we have the greatest hope in the world. Amen? You guys believe that, really? You know what I mean? Because um, if we're honest, I think sometimes how he put it beautifully, just that we, when we see that, when we begin, begin to understand that, church no longer becomes dull, right? Church no longer becomes just this thing that we go to on Sundays or um, Christianity no, no longer becomes this thing that we're just adhering to, um, but it actually becomes life-giving uh, to us, um, but also to the rest of the world, because that's what God intended. Um, and so uh, I'm going to pray one more time, so uh, bear with me. Uh, Father God, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we, we love you, Lord. Father, we thank you so much, um, just as uh, J.I. Packer said, God, that we have this hope. God, even though we don't always see it, God, even though we don't always experience it on a day-to-day, God, this is your, your, your prayer Father, in, in John 17, that we would be one with one another just as you are one uh, with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, God, and that we would experience that same joy. Father, we would experience that same power and life-giving power, God, and that the world, uh, through, through that union, God, that we have with you and with one another, would marvel, God, and would want to come in uh, to know you, Father, as a result. God, we pray that you would impress that um, in us this morning, God, um, so that we might uh, uh, be, be that light to, to the rest of the world, Father, and that we might experience the joy that you um, promised in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so if, if you've been with us uh, in Ephesians, we've been uh, talking about um, Christian unity, um, uh, amongst other things. We've also been talking about um, our, our lives in Christ, um, how many of you guys enjoyed Pastor Crawford's message last Sunday? You better clap it. He's, he's a pastor and he's sitting right there. You better, you better clap for him. Um, but I, I really enjoyed it, one, because, um, one, it was just very practical. I think sometimes we hear messages that might be up here, but I think when it comes to actually living out the gospel, what does that look like? And he kind of laid out, hey, listen, like if we're new in Christ, then we need to look like it, right? We need to act like it. Um, and so he talked about putting on Christ, kind of like you put on uh, new clothes and putting off the old garments of anger um, and that sort of thing. Um, and then uh, we, we ended um, in chapter, uh, we ended on, we ended with uh, the Holy Spirit which was uh, something that we might have missed, but um, what, God is, what God is essentially saying is that when we um, put on uh, our identity in Christ and as we live this out 
It's not something that we're doing on our own, right? If you've lived this Christian walk um, long enough, then you probably understand that you need some help. Um, amen? Right? Like, we cannot do this on our own. This isn't some, uh, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to just, uh, um, you know, study the word until, you know, it gets down into my mind and in my heart. Like, this isn't just sort of a, um, you know, for the, for the, for the extremely disciplined and, in, and the extremely um, persistent uh, that we're going to get this right. But, in fact, we need the Holy Spirit. And, and Crawford, Pastor Crawford ended um, saying that we need to be filled um, with the Holy Spirit. And so if you join me, this is Ephesians chapter um, 4, verse 15. I'm just going to kind of go over that. He says, be careful then um, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Verse 17 says, therefore, do not be... <laughs> Got a little too, too excited. Um, it says, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, Paul says that what does Holy Spirit-filled uh, Christians look like? They are essentially worshipful in their heart to the Lord, but also in fellowship to one another. So if, if we're going to kind of see what a, a, a Spirit-filled church looks like or a Christ-centered church looks like, we're, we're identifying um, the heart and attitude of individuals. If we're uh, joyful in, in, in expressing our worship and thanks for what God has done, by the way, it's amazing, so that should be a normal posture anyway, but a lot of times we don't see it that way. So the Spirit needs to fill us in order for us to really fully appreciate what God has done in our life. Because yes, he died and yes, he rose again and he's done all these amazing things. But because of sin, because of issues within our heart and in our mind and in our reasoning, we sometimes don't get how amazing that is, right? I spoke on that a, a few weeks ago that we need help at times understanding this. But what happens when the Spirit fills you it overflows in joy and gratitude towards what God has done. But it also, um, Paul will say, that to submit one to another. And so um, I just kind of want to give you a, kind of an explanation. A lot of times when we hear the, the Holy Spirit, there's like this uh, sort of cringing, um, maybe for some believers or whatever, because there's at times a misunderstanding of what the Holy, who the Holy Spirit is. Right? He's not a force. He's not just a power. He's actually a person. Right? And, and when we say filled with the Spirit, what are we talking about? So um, uh, Paul in Ephesians says that believers, when you, when you come to trust in Christ, the Bible's clear that you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit comes to live within you, um, and he reminds you of who you are in Christ. He guarantees your salvation. If you look at Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse is... Sorry, I lost my place, guys. Hit it. Yep, 13. Thank you so much. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed. 
You were marked in him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so when we believe in Christ, the Bible says the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. But there's also um, another sense in which the Holy Spirit um, ministers in our lives and manifests himself in our lives. And so that's what Paul is saying. He's saying the Holy Spirit actually uh, throughout our lives continually wants to fill us in such a way that we exemplify the traits of Christ and actually experience the joy that God promised. Like I prayed in John 17 where he says that you would be one as uh, me and the Father are one. We would experience that joy and that fellowship in Christ. And so the Holy Spirit um, comes upon believers throughout their life and matures them. And we can speak of it that way, that the Holy Spirit is mature. We would be examples to the rest of the world. And so Paul says that, uh, what does that look like? Um, it looks like what we've mentioned, and it's going to come out in, in what we talk about here. And so um, I want to forewarn you guys that uh, this is probably one of the hardest things um, <laughs> that I've had to study um, in terms of understanding it. Um, and in, in no way am I claiming to be an expert on some of these things that we're going to talk about. Um, you'll see why. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> um, but, but simultaneously, I think uh, one, of, one of the beautiful things is that um, God, God lays these things out, and as we'll see, uh, the grounding for all these things, just like D.I. Packer said, is not grounded in the relationships themselves, but it's actually grounded in the relationship that we have with Christ. And I think if we can all keep that in perspective as we're talking about some of these things, it'll kind of alleviate some of the tension that we might feel. Um, and then also, it's just good practice. There are going to be challenging things we read in Scripture uh, many times, and I think it's, it's good not to shy away from those things, right? But it's, it's good to kind of take those things head on and, and wrestle with them. And whether we fully understand it after this uh, sermon, which I'm not banking on, um, but I am uh, confident that the Lord will give us um, wisdom to understand it better. Um, and so uh, verse 21 says, uh, submit to one another. It's actually continuing from the verse before. It says, uh, the Holy Spirit's fullness... Um, causes you to submit to one another, essentially, out of reverence for Christ. And this is where we get into some, some, some nice waters right here. Uh, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, um, as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. So uh, this is uh, where usually <laughs> um, this is usually where the the wives usually uh, make some kind of face or um, you know don't don't appreciate the words very much. So um, and also I feel uh, being being a guy, this doesn't feel good to have to preach. Well, um, <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, I, I think um, when we see this, when we see this word um, submit, I think a lot of times there's a misunderstanding um, with with uh, a word like submit. And I think part of that reason is that um, usually when when we read passages in Scripture, um, we tend to uh, kind of um, come into it with a bias or a sense of understanding. And, and a lot of times we we um, it clouds our understanding of a particular word. So one example would be in Ephesians 1, right? Paul says that you've been adopted 
into Christ, right? Now, if we were to look at that word in today's culture, adoption has negative connotations at times, um, depending on the foster care system and different things like that. Um, there might be a negative idea of adoption, which means, okay, if you're adopted, you don't get the same kind of love and affection that you would um, from that parent because that's not your child. But, but in Paul's day, adoption meant something completely different. Right, Paul, when he talks about adoption, he talks about it in the sense that you actually experience the same rights as a, as a child. And so if we don't understand those differences, a lot of times we go into it and it can frustrate us, right? And we may not understand what that word means. But we have, we have to talk about it. What does submit actually mean? So submit actually, um, in, in the Greek word, I'm not a Greek expert, but looked it up, and it says uh, that it means to arrange yourself under um, someone of authority. And the, the passage um, is, in terms of the attitude, it's to willingly submit yourself under an authority figure. And so um, I want to kind of look at uh, some examples of these because a lot of times when we, we think of submission, um, we may not understand uh, actually how it plays out. But the Bible says uh, in Galatians, um, or actually in Ephesians 5.21, which we read, we're, we're to submit one to another. So right there, there's kind of this level playing field. It's not this sort of like uh, authoritarian kind of mentality or kind of this hierarchy mentality that we might think, um, but it's actually, uh, it puts us on level field, and it's actually a willing act towards one another. Um, the Bible calls us to submit to pastors, right? Like uh, in Hebrews 13.7, the Bible says that God has placed pastors in place, right, so that they can uh, help us grow and mature in Christ. Um, we, we understand this. We are to submit to rulers and authorities um, in the world. Um, Jesus submitted to his parents in honoring God, Luke 2.51, and, and, um, and the last one, uh, Jesus gave himself up to die in submitting to the will of the Father. So we understand how it works in some respects, um, but I also want to clarify uh, what submission is not. And so if we can get those slides up there, um, there are some misconceptions about submission that I kind of uh, wanted to point out. Um, so number one is that submission does not mean inferiority or subjection. Um, Paul says in Galatians uh, 3.28 that there's neither slave nor free, no Jew nor, nor Greek, um, nor male nor female in terms of the eyes of Christ, meaning there's no hierarchy structures with God in terms of um, your value um, and the love that God has given to all mankind. It's one in the same under Christ. Um, and we clearly see that Jesus, although he was God, still submitted to the will of God the Father, which shows Jesus is not less God, right? He's still God. He's still the Son, right? But he still submits to God. So he's not less God simply because he submits. Um, number two, uh, submission does not mean absolute obedience. Um, what I mean by that is that uh, while there is some sort of obedience happening maybe within marriage um, to some degree, uh, absolute obedience doesn't mean that we submit or that wives submit in, um, in instances of sin, right? So if a husband were to tell his wife to, to do something that is explicitly against what Scripture commands, um, the Bible is not saying submit to that, right? The Bible is saying submit to God ultimately, right? And so God's commands and, and, and what he desires is above um, simply what a husband would say. But uh, simultaneously, it's assumed that the husband is loving his wife, that the husband is um, following Jesus, and that he's submitting to um, Christ as his, um, his God. Uh, number three, submission doesn't mean silence. Um, that's a misconception in, in marriage, and 
Um, why I said that I wasn't an expert in this, uh, I've been married for about two months. Um, so, yeah, thank you, thank you. Appreciate it. Um, I don't know if that's like a clap of sympathy or if that's like a clap of like encur encouragement, um, but, but, um, but yeah, submission does not mean silence, meaning like when you're talking about, you know, decisions within the home, that doesn't mean that the wife is not able to kind of, you know, give her input and, and, and decide on things within the family for the good of the family. Um, and uh, honestly, if, if a guy chose a girl to be his wife, um, obviously he chose her for um, her, her wisdom, I'm sure, right? And so to not allow her to speak into the family situations and kind of make decisions with him would be pretty dumb. Um, so submission does not mean silence. Women are encouraged to use their God-given gifts in their marriage. And number four, submission is not feeling or merit-oriented. So this is, um, this is probably the more challenging one because the idea is like, okay, well, um, I'm, the Bible clearly says submit, but what happens when the person's not acting <laughs> in all ways um, like Christ would, right? Um, and again, this, this doesn't negate um, that a husband is supposed to love his wife. This isn't negating that a husband's supposed to honor God. But there are also moments where, um, you know, if I'm as a husband being a, a jerk to Christina, um, that doesn't mean that her job is then to give me the cold shoulder and kind of resist me at every turn, right? So God is still calling her to lovingly um, uh, help me and even uh, share when she feels slighted or feels like kind of uh, put on the back burner, right? And so, um, so yeah, so th those are kind of uh, elements that what, what submission does not mean, essentially. Um, but now, here, here's the, the truth of this. What is, what is the motivation for submission? What is, what is, what is the purpose of submission? So, um, it says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior, now, as this church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. The word in everything, by the way, doesn't mean every, uh, everything, every situation, but it means in all manners of life, there is a sense where the wife is to allow her husband to, to trust him, um, to entrust herself to him, and not to hold back in a sense um, of her independence in a way, um, to, to give herself to, to love him, to serve him, to um, help him become like Christ. Um, in a way, help him run the family. So it's not in every single situation, right? Um, Christina doesn't need to ask me when she needs to eat and do all these things. Like, that's not what it's talking about. That's a given. But, uh, but the idea is that uh, she is in every way, and, and wives are to um, allow uh, Christ to kind of um, lead the family um, through the husband as the head um, and still work through situations um, where that might be unclear. Um, does that make sense, guys? Yes. Yes? Awesome. Um, but here's, here's the truth. Uh, we're moving on to husbands at this point. The, the, whole, the whole picture of this um, is not simply gender roles. I need to explain that. So there are some muddy things that we need to talk about, but in, entirely uh, there's a beautiful picture here that I think we'll see in a minute. So um, husbands, this is in verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, 
without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be unified to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ. However, each one, you also as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So th this is where I think the, the thrust of kind of the idea of, of submission and, and love and that kind of mutual submission that Paul talks about, it, it's actually, when, when we look at Christ, right, we, we see Christ as the head of the church, right? He's, he's, he's the authority of the church, but, but it, he's never um, using it as a, as, a, as a power struggle, right? He's never using it to uh, assert his authority. In fact, we see the exact opposite. In Philippians, we see that though Christ was God, Right? It says that he came down to the earth and became a servant. Right? He actually came down, although Christ was worshipped by angels, although Christ was exalted in the heavens, right? he actually came down and gave himself up and, and served us. Right? And how crazy is that? Like When we think about, man, God, you created all things. You have angels at your disposal, right? and yet you come, become a man, and live among us and care for the worries, the problems, the ailments, right, and, and the sins of, of, of human people. And, and though we don't treat you necessarily with the same respect that you got in heaven, you still come down and love us sacrificially and give of yourself. I mean, that's, that's amazing, right? And, and look, what he, look what he does. The purpose of, of it is he, he, he makes the church holy. So we talked about in, in chapter 2 of Ephesians that uh, we're all... Um, from birth wrapped up in sin, right? We have uh, evil intentions and thoughts, and we, prior to even coming to Christ, like we were um, a, a worse version of ourselves. Um, some of us uh, got a little bit worse even when we became a Christian. Um, just, just playing. Um, but uh, we see that Christ's love, um, he still loved us even in that place, right? But, but Christ, although he loved us in that place, Christ is not just satisfied to leave us there, right? He is uh, forming us to become more like Christ through his love, his nurturing, his uh, um, self-sacrificial giving, through the body of believers, through the word, through prayer, through the Holy Spirit. He supplies everything that we need to become beautiful um, in Christ. Um, there's a picture that I, I want to put up. It should be um, up there. Should be up there in a minute. Awesome. So, this is um, so this is a, a a picture of Christina and I um during our wedding, or it was actually uh an hour before our wedding um in what's known as like the first look. So we chose to do a, a first look, not when she's coming down the aisle, but uh, an hour before. Um, and the thing that is really uh, awesome um about this uh picture and about kind of this event is that um. Christina looked great while we were dating, don't get me wrong, but there is um, a point where we get to see each other in, in almost our most dressed up versions of ourselves, right? In, the, in, in, in probably the most beautiful versions of ourselves in terms of outward appearance. And so it's interesting, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm standing there and I, I don't see her yet, um, and then you know, she, she taps me on the shoulder and I, and I turn 
see her, and I'm immediately struck by how beautiful she is and, and how amazing she looks, right? And I'm thinking about this as I'm preparing, and I'm like, that's literally what God is doing in our, in our lives, right? When, when we think about um, where we've come from the time that we put our faith in Christ and to what God is getting ready to do um, at the end of the ages when we see Christ, I mean, it's going to be mind-blowing. And for Christ, his, he, he, he talks about the joy in this. He says that I, his, his delight is to make the, the church holy, um, to make her without spot or wrinkle, to present her, what the Bible says, faultless before God in all her beauty. And so what God is doing, he's using uh, life, he's using people, he's using difficult circumstances to strip away everything that is, that is imperfect, everything that is sinful, everything that is not like Christ to one day present us before God in all, his, all its glory. Right? And so it, 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 it amazes me that literally... That, that's where the relationship is grounded. In husbands and wives, the relationship is not grounded in sort of this hierarchical struggle, but it's actually in the purpose and in the relationship that we have with Christ. That as I see myself as a husband, but yet still as a bride of Christ, I'm saying, man, God, you are chipping away things in my life that are sinful. You are making me beautiful um, so that one day I can stand before God with, with glory and splendor. I'm desiring to do that for my wife. I'm desiring to serve her, to nurture her, to, to pray for her, to seek for her well-being and to present her um, before the Lord one day and say, man, God, I did everything um, that I could so that she would be beautiful. Um, I did everything on my part so that she would look uh, beautiful, look like Christ the way you desired. Um, Timothy Keller has a quote that I think kind of reflects this. Um, and it says in his book, this is in his book, Meaning of Marriage. Um, he says, when two Christians who fully understand this, stand before the minister all decked out in their wedding finery, they realize they're not just playing dress up. What they're saying is that someday they are going to be standing not before the minister, but before the Lord. And they will turn to see each other without spot and blemish, and they hope to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servants. Over the years, you have lifted one another up to me. You sacrificed for one another. You held one another up with prayer and with thanksgiving. You confronted each other. You hugged and you loved each other and continually pushed each other towards me. And now look at you. You're radiant. And that, that's, that's the attitude that, that Christ has towards us, that though things are difficult, and I kind of want to speak to the church as a whole, like even though there's difficulties in your life and even though there are struggles, this is God's aim. God's aim is not to, to beat you down. God's aim is not to... Um, to, to just inflict pain. What God is doing in your life is to, to one day present you before God like this. And so there are moments that seem painful in our lives. There are moments that we can't fully comprehend and understand, but this is God's heart um, for his bride. This is God's heart for his church. And as husbands, this is God's uh, desire for us that we would be those who, um, just as he did, he sacrificed himself. He laid his life down um, for the sake of his bride. It also says that the husband is to nurture, just like, if you, if you think about this, this is true of all of us, we, we take pretty good care of ourselves, right, for the most part, right? We, we feed ourselves when we're hungry, right? <laughs> um, and we, uh, we drink when we're, when we're thirsty, right? We, we shower, hopefully. Um, <laughs> and uh, we do these things 
um, because we, there's this kind of fundamental understanding of, of self-preservation and taking care of yourself in a way, right? And we, we miss the mark at times, but the general principle is true. And um, Paul grounds this idea, man, as husbands are taking care of your wives, you're not just taking care of another individual. You're actually taking care of yourself in a way because spiritually there's this mystery, there's this connection that we can't fully understand. But um, when a husband and wife are joined together, it's one flesh. It's this uh, union um, in the way that Christ is to the church. And so my, our mentality when thinking even with one another, we're, we're looking at each other not as though we're just uh, separate, but we're looking, uh, we're, we're looking at each other as though we're one. Does that make sense? And so our care for even one another as a church is, is meant to reflect this union. We're not just, just saying, oh, that's that person that I don't like. Uh, that's that person who's different from me. No, we're saying th- this is, uh, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one bride with the Lord. Um, but for husbands, it, it goes a little And so um, his heart for his wife is, is to nurture her, um, to do whatever he can to see that she becomes more and more like Jesus. Amen? Um, chapter 6 says that uh, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right all parents are like amen Um, honor your father and mother uh, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth fathers do not exasperate your children instead bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord Um, for Paul's day I want to I want to say Paul's day a lot of these things are unique because for Paul, um, in, in Roman culture, there was usually just um, letters and codes written to the heads of households um, to kind of tell them how they were to rule and dominate their household. But in these instances, Paul is actually uh, applying dignity to, to wives and children um, and, and causing them not just to rule with authority, but actually rule with compassion. Um, and so all of this, again, is, is grounded in Christ. He says that you are to obey your parents in the Lord. As we obey Christ, we are, in a sense, to see that um, when we obey our parents um, as young children, we are to uh, obey our parents as, as though it were unto Christ. For parents, they are to raise their kids up, and in the instructions of the Lord, he is not to... Um, uh, just using rules and regulations, um, try to raise your kids, um, because how many guys know that that doesn't always work, right? You apply rules, and, it, and kids are, are wired to break rules. It's just normal, right? Um, but more than that, it's to be an instruction that you are modeling um, for your children uh, who Christ is. You're modeling for them that same kind of self-sacrificing love for them, um, and, and while discipline is still necessary, you're doing it in a way um, with the heart of loving them and pointing them towards Christ, not simply uh, to get your way or not simply to uh, make them submit or obey, but actually um, to point them to be more godly. And that's kind of what Paul is addressing here. Um, the last one, which is uh, a little bit tricky, um, but we're going to go there. So it says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them 
since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So, the one thing that I hear a lot of times when, when um, and, and a lot of times it surfaces on social media and, and, and even um, uh, unbelieving friends of mine or people that I come across, they, they, they highlight passages like this and say, okay, well, um, why, why is slavery in the Bible? You know, if, if God is a good God, why, why is there slavery um, that exists in the Bible? And um, while I'm not prepared to go in, in depth with every sort of nuance um, about this, I kind of want to help us to unpack a little bit of, of what slavery was then and what it wasn't um, to kind of give us an understanding. Um, and then also to what, what can this be applied to? What can this be compared to? And so um, if you can put the slides on the screen. Um, kind of, number one, the idea is that slavery was not based, in the, in the first century, slavery was not based on race, but functioned primarily as debt relief. And so a lot of times when we view slavery as, as a word, again, the, the idea immediately comes um, to kind of the institutions of slavery that we've seen um, and the horrific versions of it that we've seen. And not that uh, slaves were not mistreated in the first century. There were instances of that, but the slavery was different that um, it was not based on a race of people, but it was, it was actually a socioeconomic, um, at times a transaction where um, someone would give of themselves to pay off a debt, um, right? And, and so in, in some cases, not all, I wanna, I wanna be careful to not kind of create this all-encompassing all idea, but it functioned um, in some cases primarily as an employer-employee relationship. Not in all cases, but in, in many cases. Um, number two, uh, slavery was in many cases voluntary. Um, the Bible condemns the kind of slavery through kidnapping and forced slavery. Um, a lot of people look at the Bible and they say the Bible simply endorses it because it talks about it. One, um, the Bible describes a lot of different things right, but doesn't always necessarily prescribe them, um, meaning the Bible may, may describe a lot of different systems and worldly systems that it doesn't agree with, um, and simply because it does that does not mean that it endorses it. But in this case, um, in 1 Timothy 1.10, uh, the word used for uh, kidnapping um, is kind of this idea of what we've seen in kind of the horrific versions of slavery where a group of people are taken um, uh, against their will and, and forced into slavery. The Bible actually condemns that. In Revelation 21.8, it speaks of those who, who unregenerate and live in this lifestyle of kidnapping won't inherit the kingdom of God. And so it rules that kind of slavery out um, from a possibility so that we don't get it confused. Um, number three. Uh, Paul instructs believers not to become slaves um, and encourages slaves to avail themselves of opportunities of freedom. We see this in 1 Corinthians 7, 2-23. Paul says that um, don't, uh, don't look to be enslaved. Um, and there were opportunities in the first century where slaves could actually buy their freedom um, or work to pay off the debt to be able to earn it. And at certain points in time, uh, masters were required to release uh, their slaves. And so Paul says in that system, uh, avail yourself of that opportunity to gain freedom. So Paul's understanding within Christian ethic and belief that we're all free in Christ, his, his, his heart was not to just simply um, uh, allow this to go on, but, but through the gospel, he's, he's, he's seeing that there's an incompatibility with slavery, and he's um, calling for, in a sense, for, for freedom as the ultimate goal. 
Um, and the last one, uh, the gospel seeks to affect change of worldly systems from the inside out. Um, if you've ever re read the book of Philemon, it's an awesome book. Um, might be confusing, but Paul has this relationship with a Christian um, master. And in that book, um, the, the Christian master slave runs away. And um, the, the slave at the time that he left um, was not a believer. Um, but Paul calls the, the, the master to not simply um, uh, have the slave come back, but he, he highlights that um, at that point the, the slave's name was Onesimus, and Onesimus um, became a believer under Paul's care. So Paul, at some point, we, we believe that he preached the gospel to him, he got saved, um, and now Paul is actually calling Philemon in light of the gospel, in light of his relationship with Paul, um, to actually see this person not as a slave but as a brother in Christ. And beyond that, he actually, what some suggest, is actually calling for his release, knowing that the gospel, if we're actually going to exemplify freedom, that it should look actual, actually physical as well. And so some believe that he's calling for his, his freedom. And so I say that to say that in when we look at these passages, let, let us not immediately jump to the conclusion that it was negative. Um, I encourage you guys uh, to study this and to, to really think about um, these things a little bit more deeply. Um, but I say that to say um, what some people have said is that the slave-master comparison could be um, akin to like employer-employee relationships in some respect. And so the application for us is like, how, how are we doing at work when it comes to um, submitting to our bosses and um, the way that we do our work? Um, it says that we are to obey our, our masters, or in this, in this context, uh, bosses, with a sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. He says, not only when their favor, when their eye is on you, but as bondservants or slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. So ultimately, <laughs> we've all done this when our boss is not looking, right? Like there's always this kind of like, slacking off a little bit, right? Um, but God, God is telling us, like, listen, like, if you understand your relationship to God, right, if you understand that God is the rewarder of, all, of, of those who do good, right, and your ultimate desire is to please God, then, I mean, that changes the way we work, that changes the way we, we, we do married life, that changes the way we, we treat our kids, and, and ultimately, that's Paul's point. He's saying the gospel is not just about changing um, us individually, although it is. It's not just about changing um, our, our, our happiness or our mindsets alone, but it actually changes the way that we actually uh, relate to one another, right? And so I, 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 can, I can love my wife not because she's my wife alone, but because I'm actually doing it in light of what God has done for me and in light that I'm doing it as unto the Lord, right? I, I can love my kids not because, I don't have kids by the way, I'm just, you know, prophesying in the future, right? Um, but I can love my kids in such a way knowing that ultimately uh, Christ loves me, right? And, and, and I'm seeking for them to grow up in their faith and nurture them so that they become mature believers, right? Um, I can uh, love my boss and I can submit to him um, even though at times I don't necessarily um, always feel like it or um, I always see their perspective or anything like that. Like, because I'm doing it as unto God. It's not a matter of simply the relationship itself, but it's grounded and rooted in Christ beyond that person. 
And I think that's part of what Christianity does. It liberates us from simply trying to please one another and, and just kind of endure relationships, right? It actually says, man, I can do my, my, my duties, my responsibilities, my relationships with joy because of what Christ has done and because of that relationship that I have with Christ. And so it, if, if we understand this, it's really a game changer because I promise you, you can go through life um, and, and simply just do what you're supposed to do and, and follow these duties and do these things. And I promise you, you'll never do them to the sense of which God is actually calling us to do them and the joy that he promises we can experience through them. Um, the last thing is that, again, uh, the Holy Spirit is the agent by which we're even able to do these things. I promise you, you're not going to be able to do any of these things that I've mentioned. You're not going to be able to, to love your wife, love your kids, uh, honor your bosses, um, and, and honor your employees absent of the Holy Spirit in your life. I mean, you can follow the rules. You can, you know, try your best to treat them and grit your teeth and do all that stuff, right? It's not going to work apart from the Holy Spirit. And the, so that's why Paul is saying, he's saying, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that as we're in these relationships, we're doing them joyfully. And as the world is looking in on that, that's the big picture, that God is using the church through our relationships, that the world, as they're looking in, they would see Christ exalted in those relationships. The world needs to see uh, husbands that love their wives well, right? The world needs to see wives that love their husbands. The world needs to see godly parents. The world needs to see employers that, that love their employees and respect them and still treat them with, with respect and honor and dignity because of Christ. The world needs to see employees who honor their bosses even when things aren't always going their way. Why? Because it, it, it helps them to see God transcends uh, problems and issues and actually desires a relationship with us, right? And, and, and this is primarily how God is doing it. And so as we submit to that, um, the world might actually... Um, come to know Christ the way that we desire. Amen? Amen. Father God, we, we thank you so much um, for your word. God, I know there are some things in here to tackle, and if everything didn't make sense, God, I pray for wisdom and, and discernment, Father, amongst your people, Lord. Um, and, and God, ultimately, uh, you tell us in that, that our relationships, Father, are not simply one-to-one, uh, -one, God. They're not just uh, relationships that we're, we're to endure, God, but we are to see ourselves uh, in our relationship with Christ and to, to love, to serve, to respect, to sacrificially give, God, because of what you've done for us. And so, God, I pray for your people, Lord. I pray for a filling of the Holy Spirit, God, that they would be able to act um, in the way that you've called us to live so that the world might marvel at who you are. And so, Lord, I, I ask that if, if anyone is struggling with any of these things, God, I pray for, for again, a filling of your spirit, God, that they might be able to, uh, to live out their um, responsibilities and these relationships, Father, with joy, um, pointing, those, pointing to those around them um, to Christ, Lord. Father, we thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our weekly podcast. We pray it was life-giving. To find out more about us, visit our website at roxboroughchurch.org and join us for worship on Sundays at 10.30 a.m.